Good morning, everyone. Um, so it was planned that I'd be speaking this week, but I feel a little bit like a substitute teacher um, in that Peter is at home sick this morning. So um, I'm without supervision, and you can give him a hard time for missing a Sunday. But <laughs> we're going to be um, continuing the series of God is Love this week. Um, and, and before I get into this week's topic, I, I hope something that you've been gathering from this series is that, is that God's love is different. God's love is different than, say, say your grandma's love. Right? If you think the way that, that your grandma loved you, you, you maybe think of someone who's just always excited to see you. Um, just a warm, full, simple love. Maybe you think of, of special treats that she would always have for you. Um, there's just a, a simplicity and an, an affirmation and a warmness with that. Although, I will say I'm learning, now that I have kids of my own, that, that that love gets to be simple because your grandma knows that she gets to give you back with all the problems and responsibilities of raising you in a pretty short amount of time. So, um, maybe it wouldn't be as simple without that piece. But, um, but anyway, God's love is not like that um, because, because He is... All of the attributes that we've been looking at. Um, we, we are loved by a God who is self-existent. He is what he is because that's what he is. We're loved by a God who is omnipresent. He is everywhere in every moment of everything you've ever experienced. We're loved by a God who is omnipotent, can do anything. There's no power or authority that can contend with what he determines to do. We're we're loved by a God who is omniscient, who knows not only everything that is, but everything that ever could have been and wasn't. We're loved by a God who is immutable, who never changes any of his character or his purposes. And to be loved by a God who is like that is different. And we need to understand those attributes to understand what God's love is like, but I hope that you've also been seeing that God's love is strengthened by all of those attributes. It is a good thing that God is infinite and that he loves us. It changes the character of his love, but I, I hope that you see that it is a good thing. And this morning we're going to be continuing in that vein, looking at God's sovereignty. We are loved also by a God who is sovereign. So a a definition of sovereignty is, uh, this is from John Piper, he says, God's right and power to do all that he decides to do. God's right and power to do all that he decides to do. We're talking about um, his power and authority and the way that he uses it in the world. Ephesians 1.11 describes God as this, the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And I think what you can take from that is this is more than just potential power and authority. He is using that of power and authority to work all things to his will. And I think as you see this attribute of God, it can feel a little bit fearful. When you recognize that you are relating to a God who has all power and authority to do anything that he wants to do, I think it can make you aware of your vulnerability before that God. I remember when I was studying these attributes of God and um, 
in, in what was, so we were talking about the incommunicable attributes of God, the way that God is not like us. Um, and I would, I would go for walks kind of to, to think and to pray sometimes and um, to get to one spot and I, I could look up and the sky just seems really big from this. You kind of turn a corner and um, it was often sunset and it was just a really big place, one of my favorite places to walk. But, but as I was studying these attributes of God, I, I began to realize this sort of connected in my mind and my, my heart just that, that I'm just exposed here. Uh, if you ever thought about this, when you're standing under the sky, there's just nothing up there. There's just infinity and nothing, right? I mean, it, it just goes. <laughs> there's nothing between you and the stars, light years away. And, and that sort of was connecting my mind, realizing that's how I'm standing before God. I'm just standing here exposed before a God who has power and authority over me. I am defenseless here. Whatever God decides to do in my life, I can say nothing about it. What would I do to contend with this God? And I think as you look at sovereignty, it can feel that way, but it shouldn't. Because I was making a mistake in that moment as I was thinking about sovereignty, actually a mistake that Peter's been telling you this whole series not to do, which is separating God's attributes. Thinking of God's sovereignty disconnected from God's love. Because it really changes the way you see God's power and authority to do all that he determines to do if you remember in that moment that what he determines to do is to love you. An example of this might be uh, a fathers have an enormous amount of power and authority over their children. Right? You, you leave them at home with these kids and they're just when they're young, they're just so much stronger, they have more knowledge, they have a great amount of power and authority over their children, and we view that normally as a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's not a scary thing. We, we would think of people who don't have fathers, study after study would show, they are disadvantaged for not having that. And why is that? Because fathers use their power and authority for the good of their children. They use it to protect them. They use it to build them up. They use it to strengthen them. Power and authority is married with love. And if you hold those things together, that's the right way to understand God's sovereignty. If you put them apart, it's going to feel fearful and make God feel maybe distant, like a distant dictator to be feared. But over and over again, we see in the Bible, God is not that. For his people, God is a father working all things for the good of his people. You've got to hold those two things together when you understand God's sovereignty. And over and over again, when the Bible shows that God is in control, it's always a good thing for His people. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to just look at a few places in the Bible um, where we see clearly God's sovereignty displayed. Now normally the Bible sort of talks about God's sovereignty indirectly. You see that God is sovereign by the way that things work out. That that God has been planning this all along because it went to the ends that he said. But there are a few places in the Bible where the the biblical authors sort of pull back the curtain and say, look at this. This is how God is working here. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. A few of those places where the the authors are kind of pointing out, look how God is working and sovereign in this moment. Probably one of the the clearest places you can see this is in the story of Joseph. 
right? If you, if you remember the story of Joseph, um, it starts off with a, just a younger brother who's really just kind of a pain in the neck, right? He's, he's his father's favorite, getting all these gifts. Um, he keeps, he ends up talking about these dreams where he sees his brothers and his, even his parents bowing down to him and just kind of talking about this in a really, uh, pain in the neck brother kind of way his brothers end up getting tired of it selling him into slavery he ends up down in Egypt where there he's also falsely accused of assaulting his master's wife ends up in prison but because of his ability to interpret dreams and particularly Pharaoh's dream he ends up as the second in command of all of Egypt and through the knowledge gained by interpreting Pharaoh's dream he begins to put aside food for the coming famine so that all the nations around end up having to come to Egypt to buy food, including his brothers, who end up coming and bowing just as his dreams had predicted. But in that moment, Joseph has a decision to make, and and he could use his power to take revenge against his brothers for what they've done, but he doesn't. And the reason he doesn't is what I want to think about. Why does Joseph not avenge himself against his brothers? Well, it's because he tells us he sees that through their actions, God was working to accomplish his ends. Towards the end of his life, when his brothers are still afraid, even though he's told them before, I'm I'm not going to punish you. Um, When his father dies, they're afraid that he is still going to now punish them. And this is what he explains to them in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is a picture of God's sovereignty, and then I think Joseph sees that God is the ultimate intender in this story. His brothers had an intention in sending him into slavery, but God had an intention for that same thing that worked out for a bigger purpose. I think as we encounter God's sovereignty, it's a helpful way to think about how we experience it. God is the ultimate intender. He's the ultimate reason. When you look at any particular thing, you can see a lot of reasons that things happen. For example, you could probably go around and give me a bunch of reasons the saints are not playing this weekend. Right? You you could give me reasons. We could talk about points, performance. We could talk about penalties. We could talk about a bunch of different reasons. And there would be truth in each of those reasons, right? It, it would be true. If they'd scored more points in any particular time, we would be playing this weekend. If penalties had been different, if this or that had happened differently, we would be playing this weekend. They're all reasons. But do you see none of those are necessarily ultimate reasons. They kind of just all exist in this one place, and it's kind of hard to tell which one is, is the, the reason, or, or maybe you could ask, why am, I, why am I in the place that I'm at? For example, why am I here right now teaching? I could give you a number of reasons that, that would have truth to them. I could tell you my mom was a teacher. And maybe there's something in the way that I was raised or what I got from her that, that lend itself to, to me wanting and, and having some ability to teach. And there'd probably be truth to that. Maybe on a little more cynical note, you could, you could say that as being around... Growing up in the church, I noticed, hey, that person at the front, he gets a lot of uh, people really like him. <laughs> there'd be some pride element going on and saying, I, I want to be that guy. And, and there'd probably be some truth to that too. I could tell you, I just, I love the Bible. 
And having studied it and, and learned from it, I want other people to see what I see in it. And there would be truth to that. There'd be a number of reasons for where I am right now. But when we encounter sovereignty, what we find is the ultimate reason. I am here right now. Psalm 139, because God formed me in my mother's womb. And while I have maybe planned a lot of my ways, Proverbs 16.9 tells me that God is the one who establishes my steps. Underneath all of those reasons, more fundamental than any other explanation I can give you for where I am right now, the reason is God made me and directed me to this point right here. That's how we encounter God's sovereignty as the ultimate and tender. That's what Joseph saw in his life story, that the ultimate reason all the things happened in my life is God had a purpose for them, and God worked all of those things to his will. I think you can also see in the story of Joseph a little bit of how God's sovereignty interacts with messy situations. Right? Not everything that happened along the way in Joseph's story was a good thing. A lot of the story is a lot of bad things. And yet, Joseph sees that God was working even through those evil things. It was evil for his brothers to sell them into slavery. That's true. But when God intended it, it was not evil for God to intend that because God had a bigger purpose for that which he accomplished. That many people would stay alive through the coming famine. He needed someone to go and tell Pharaoh this is going to happen so that people don't die from the famines. Particularly God's people don't die in this famine. And when God intended Joseph to be sent as a slave to Egypt and end up in a prison, it was not evil for God to intend that because he had a larger purpose. Do we see how this sort of works? My, my favorite example of this is the cross. I've, I've used this before when I'm talking about sovereignty. I used this talking the other day with some of these guys over here. The cross. Was it evil? Was it evil for the Pharisees to murder an innocent man on a torture device? Yes, it was. Was it evil for God to send Jesus to the cross. Even when Jesus said, Lord, is there any other way? And God did not let him out of it. No. That was the best thing that's happened in the entire history of the world. What from one perspective was evil for people to do, from another perspective was not evil for God to intend in his larger purpose. I think this gives us a window to help understand the pattern of how God's sovereignty can interact with whatever situations we're looking at. God never does evil, even though he works through things that from a human perspective are evil. Because God is working all of those things to his larger purpose. We're not given the purpose in every circumstance. I cannot tell you why any particular evil thing happens, I, it's not written down for me like it is in the story of Joseph or in the cross. But that pattern helps me reconcile my understanding of God's sovereignty with the messy situations that I'm living in all the time. And I think we need that pattern when we're encountering that mess. When you look at Isaiah, 
Isaiah is living in a context that's really messy. He's living at the end of the, the southern kingdom of Israel, and, and they've had a series of kings that have been a mixed bag, but, but kind of increasingly bad kings. Idolatry is rampant throughout the land. Um, this, this kingdom looks nothing like what God intended his people to look like. And actually the first half, two-thirds of Isaiah is, is God prophesying judgment on his people and the surrounding nations for the evil that they have been doing. And in the midst of that mess, we get Isaiah 46, a statement of God's sovereignty and his purpose in this situation. Starting in verse 8, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is saying, Remember, in the midst of all of this, I am still sovereign. I've declared the end from the beginning, and to what end is he working? Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. Verse 12, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Imagine you're living in this time in the kingdom and you're trying to live faithfully and yet your neighbors all around you are worshiping these, these wooden statues or whatever it is that they're bowing down to. You're hearing of rumors of war from the countries around you. The nation all just seems to be in decline. Does it sound like a news to anybody? Depending on who's talking. And then you hear God speak into the mess that you're living in and say, I am still in charge. I am still in control of this. I am bringing judgment, but I am bringing my salvation. All the mess that you're seeing around has not done anything to stop my purposes to bring good to my people. When you're living in that mess, when life's situations seem chaotic, they seem evil, we need to know that God is sovereign. That's the moment where you want to know that God is in control. You need to remember God is working even through the mess, even though it's not the straight line progress to victory that we would want. You want to know that God has a purpose for what is happening. We sing about this on Sunday mornings to remind ourselves when darkness seems to hide its face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. What is your anchor? Your anchor is God. His sovereignty. His omnipotence. His omniscience. He is in control of this. Even though it looks like a crazy storm is happening, you are okay. Because God is still sovereign. Nothing that's happening is ever random. That's what this means, what God's sovereignty means. John Piper brings it this way. He says, loosely, God's sovereignty means that not one moment of your suffering is meaningless. Not one moment is random 
or wasted. God has a purpose for everything that happens. I don't know what that is. But I see that God works all things for the good of those who are in him. No matter what's happening, God is never far off. Things are never out of control. His love for you is not diminished. And I think we see this no more clearly than in the cross. God's sovereignty is working to bring about the purposes of his love. Ephesians 1, 3-5 is sort of pulling back the curtain again to let us see where God is working. And here's what it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. First of all, this passage is just mind-bending. If you want to think about what it means... That before the foundation of the world, plan A was for us to be saved through Jesus dying on a cross. The implications of that could spend far more time than I have to think through. (laughs) But the point I want to emphasize here is that when God looked before the foundation of the world, and again, God is timeless, so this, this metaphor is just a human way to think about it, but when God said, this is what I'm going to do, what was guiding his purpose? Love. In love, he predestined us. God's sovereignty and his love cannot be separated. They must be held together to understand what it is. I think some of us have a tendency who, who love to see the grandness of God and the, his glory and all of the great things that he's accomplished can actually begin to forget that, that love is woven throughout all of those things. We can see a, a great God or an adventure or a, a majestic picture of what he's done and love to look at that and forget the personalness, the closeness and the nearness that God uses his glory to bring himself to. I think I, I'm, I'm one who tends to do this. I remember when I, this is a bit of an embarrassing story, I decided to sell it. But um, when I was in college, I, I remember going on a run and I had just kind of really been seeing God's glory and his, um, the adventure and the, the grandness that he calls us to live into sort of for the first time. I was really excited about this. So I'd gone running really early and I decided I just wanted to get up and see the sunrise somewhere which is hard to do in a lot of New Orleans places because it's all flat and there's trees. Um, (laughs) And and I was running and I saw, looked over and I saw there's a hill. Oh, I'm just going to run over and and get up on that hill so I can see the sunrise. Just have to sneak through this fence here. It was a construction site. You can't go into a construction site. Um, There was nobody around, but I went in and, and I hadn't sat down more than 20 seconds when I hear a, you're on the hill. Come over here. The police officer had seen me come, climb up onto the hill, and called me over. 
basically just scared me. He was like, you realize I can arrest you for being up on this hill, dummy? And um, I, w- I ended up running back home and being pretty embarrassed and, and kind of shaken. Um, somebody who relies on, it feels okay in the world because I feel like I can handle whatever situation's coming. The idea that you can arrest it for being stupid is a little bit... Um, but I remember that moment because of what happened next. I, I remember praying to God about it, just kind of dealing with the emotions that were going on inside me. And what he said to me in that moment was, you are my son. I wrote it down. I, I remember that. And I think what he was doing in my heart, I didn't realize this at the time, but looking back, I think I saw at the moment, I felt like pursuing God was me running out to meet the grandness of what God had done. Going to find something great and glorious out there and and achieving that. And I had forgotten that what God had done with that grand, glorious plan was drawn near to me. The infinite, omnipotent God had used his power and his knowledge and his authority to come and save me, a sinner. He loved me first. I wasn't holding those two ideas together, and we need to do that to fully appreciate the glory that is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty and his love are never separated because what he did with that sovereignty was ultimately love us. When when we see God's attributes, we should I hope I hope that these all are strengthening your confidence in God's love. I think that's what sovereignty, omnipotence, omniscience does for us. God's love for us is infinite and certain. It's the reason for our confidence in him. I I can't say this better than Romans 8 says it, so I'm just going to read this. Uh, but, But as I read it, be looking for how certain these words are. Romans 8, I'm going to skip a little bit, but Romans 8, 28 to 33. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God's love is fundamentally part of who he is. God's love is omnipresent. It is present in every place and every moment. Even in the darkest times of your life, God loves you there. God's love is omnipotent. There's no power or force, not even your sin, that can overcome God's love. 
God's love is omniscient. He knows everything about you. He knew everything about you before it was even a thing. And he loved you. You are fully known and fully loved. God's love is immutable. It will never change. Nothing can change God's love for you. And God's love is sovereign. It is certain. It is the final word. Nothing can stand against God's love for you. And I hope as you have taken in these topics on God's infinite attributes, we're going to continue, I think, next week with some, some different attributes of God. But, but these are kind of, I think, of the infinite attributes of God. That they have not made God seem distant from you, but have increased your confidence that God's love for you is infinite. Thank you.